If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Stephen Hawking famously declared that science has made philosophy irrelevant. To address his claim, we're joined this week by philosopher Rebecca Goldstein, who makes her case for why humanity can't thrive without philosophy. There are lots of things that I could say to oppose this uh, fate of philosophy. One has to do a tremendous amount of philosophical work, work that can't be done uh, within the sciences. If you enjoy today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to Rebecca Goldstein. If universities had been an invention of the second half of the 20th century, would anyone have thought to include philosophy among the subjects that are taught and studied? Um, and that was a question that was posed by very prominent Oxford philosopher Michael Dummett. Uh, who died in uh, 2011, and this was in his uh, last book, uh, The Nature and Future of Philosophy. It was, of course, very ironic because the university was invented by a philosopher, right? Plato uh, was the founder of the first European uh, university, the Academy, and Plato, of course, uh, put philosophy on the curriculum. It was a major, <laughs> major thing studied at the Academy, along, of course, with mathematics, right? It, supposedly written on the uh, entrance to the uh, academy were the words, let no one enter herein who has not first studied geometry. So math was also uh, on the curriculum, but philosophy was very, you know, front and center. And so it's, a, you know, it's an interesting uh, thought that if we were now, and here's a philosopher posing this question, what Michael Dummett was concerned with was not so much uh, the present view of uh, university education, uh, which is very reductive and very uh, put forth in economic terms, right? How one can get the most money. Well, clearly philosophy would not be the way to go, um, nor would writing novels. Uh, but um, he was concerned with, philo with philosophy as an intellectual endeavor. Uh, and the question he followed this up with was, uh, does philosophy make any progress, right? And if it doesn't make any progress, uh, why are we wasting time with it? It doesn't seem worth wasting time with. Um, and so here the, uh, the comparison is clearly with scientists, right? That's 
DS stands for Doctor of Science, right? And uh, the, the comparison, uh, the tacit comparison being made here uh, between philosophy and science uh, is that science makes progress, you know, and that philosophy doesn't. Uh, and so uh, philosophy seems to really uh, suffer in comparison uh, with science. And so many of the questions uh, that philosophers posed were eventually taken over uh, by scientists and answered. Uh, and so, you know, physics was first part of natural philosophy and biology was part of philosophy. Uh, psychology was part of philosophy. Um, uh, 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 logic was part of philosophy. Um, uh, artificial intelligence was first posed by philosophers. But then eventually, uh, it, empirical methodology catches up, and these questions are taken out of the domain of philosophy and, uh, and, and put into the province of science, where they're answered. Uh, so the most that one can say, uh, perhaps, is that philosophers um, you know, muddle about, and they pose these problems, um, and that's very good, but if we were going to get anywhere with them, uh, they have to be transformed into scientific problems. Um, so that philosophers, if they have any use at all, is to pose certain questions, um, and what they're really saying is, science desperately needed here, scientists get to work here, uh, and then we'll make some progress here. Um, there are lots of things that I could say to oppose this uh, fate of philosophy. One of which is, in order to make it out, one has to do a tremendous amount of philosophical work, work that can't be done uh, within the sciences. Um, for one thing, one has to be able to demarcate the borders between science and other things. This is not something the first scientists to do. This is a philosophical uh, question. How do we demarcate the borders? What is a scientific question and a non-scientific question? And in fact, one of the uh, demarcation uh, criteria uh, most depended on, uh, especially by scientists, um, is falsifiability. That science is, uh, puts forth theories that can be falsified uh, uh, empirically, uh, and non-scientific uh, theories can't. Now, that proposal to what it is that demarcates science from other things was, of course, proposed by a philosopher, by Sir Karl, Karl Popper. Uh, you know, this is a kind of philosophical issue. We can have to talk in order to, to uh, understand the fate of philosophy or, uh, equation or be able to, uh, to, be able to, uh, to uh, defend it. We would have to uh, say what it is that science does. That itself is a philosophical question. Does science describe reality? This is the scientific realist point of view of what it is that science does. Or is it only an instrument for making further uh, predictions? Does it not really discover any new things existing uh, in reality? This is a, a raging uh, philosophical debate among scientists. It's a philosophical debate, not to be answered scientifically, right? Because there's no way to falsify uh, one's answer one way or the other. Um, and indeed, one can raise the question um, of whether or not science itself makes progress. One of the biggest questions uh, is, uh, you know, this, this quite uh, contentious view put forth by Tom Kuhn and the structure of scientific uh, revolutions, that, that science really doesn't uh, make progress. It changes the paradigm, the paradigm shift and all this. Um, so 
all I'm saying is that in order to make out this sort of question, uh, to, to defend a, the fate of philosophy, this very anti-philosophical view, uh, to defend it, one has to engage in a great deal of philosophy. I could make this argument, I could develop further, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to leave this uh, to the side um, for the moment. And instead, um, I want to make a, what I call a genealogical um, argument uh, for the importance of philosophy and for its, uh, my prediction that it's always going to stay uh, with us. So a genealogical kind of argument is one that goes back and gives a sort of narrative as how this, how this all began. And it was made very popular by, by, uh, by Nietzsche, um, the genealogy of morals. Often a genealogical uh, explanation for something uh, succeeds in undermining it, right? That you see what, what it arose from, what kind of uh, human instincts uh, gave rise to it, what kind of attitudes, um, and you see it's unjustified. But I, sometimes you can give a genealogical explanation for something, uh, trying to explain its origins, that, 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 uh, that actually bolsters up the thing. Uh, very, very good example is uh, Bernard Williams' uh, book, Truth and Truthfulness, a genealogy uh, a explanation, I think is the subtitle, where he tries to show that our commitment to truth and truthfulness uh, is, is it, it, they are deeply embedded in what it is to be human, what it is to uh, use language. Well, I want to do something like that uh, for philosophy. I don't, yes, okay. And I want to talk about um, uh, how it was that philosophy arose in the first place. Of course, it arose in ancient Greece, um, and, uh, or at least Western philosophy did. Um, and it didn't arise in isolation. It was the philosopher Karl Jaspers, a German philosopher, uh, who first made the very important observation that philosophy arose at the same time as many of the, uh, and in fact, all of the religions that are still extant today, uh, that still exist today. Um, and so, what do I have next? These are all normative paradigms. Uh, these, they all arose in roughly 800 to 200 BCE with a big spike in the 6th century BCE. And they were all normative paradigms. And what I mean here, the way philosophers tend to use the word normative, is involves any assertions of what ought to be the case as opposed to what is the case. So a normative paradigm addresses themselves to the largest vision of what our lives ought to be, the values that they ought to realize, a normative paradigm presents a global way of evaluating whether a person, most of, importantly, of course, one's own self, is living a good life or not a life that's worth living. And uh, uh, the philosopher uh, Bernard Williams had mentioned that all normative questions are paradigmatically first personal. It's generally one's own self that one's one worrying about uh, here, and, and then one generalizes to others. So, uh, what Carl uh, Jaspers had uh, realized, and he called it the axial age, is that all of the normative paradigms that we still that are still operative today, 
one way or the other, everybody in this room uh, inhabits one or another of these normative paradigms. They were all forged in roughly the same period. Uh, so there was, first of all, the Abrahamic uh, view, which uh, began with the, with the Hebrews and then got triangulated several centuries on to Judaism, Christianity, and uh, Islam, but basically the same normative paradigm. There was uh, Hinduism, there was uh, Confucianism, Zoroastrianism, Buddhism, Jainism, Zoro, did I mention Zoroastrianism? Yes. Um, and it was at the same period of great normative ferment, great normative creativity, uh, that the Greeks also made their contributions. <clears throat> their contribution was not the Olympic religion, well, they, they did have a very active religious society, right? Very, uh, religion was extremely important in ancient Greece. There were uh, religious rituals for, for everything, both private and public. Um, but that wasn't their great contribution uh, to the axial age, or what I like to call the uh, normative explosion. Um, because very few of us are still around who subscribe to the Olympic religion. We're not Zeus worshipers or Athena. Well, I do tend to say, instead of thank God, I do tend to say thank Athena. But, but most of us are not uh, subscribers to the Olympic re uh, religion. What we did, uh, what Carl Jaspers does credit the Greeks with, um, in terms of their contributions to these normative paradigms was first of all, Greek drama, but most of all, uh, Greek philosophy. That secular philosophy uh, was the answer that the ancient Greeks proposed in addressing the great existential question uh, that was roiling underneath uh, this normative explosion that gave birth to the major religions that still resonate so much with us today uh, that you know people still, still subscribe to Hinduism, Christianity, Judaism, Zoroastrianism, uh, Buddhism, Confucianism, um, and, uh, but also gave rise to secular philosophy. So if we want to understand uh, why philosophy arose in the first place, we have to see it in the context of all of this, what was going on, uh, uh, not only in ancient Greece, but, but in many different parts of the globe, in the Far East, in India, in China, in Persia, uh, in Egypt, uh, in uh, the Judean hills, and in Europe, in ancient Greece. Um, so first of all, the question is, well, there are two questions we have to ask. What, what is this great existential question that people were beginning to think about? But before I get to that, build up a little suspense, uh, why did it happen in this particular period? Why all of a sudden between 800 and 200 BCE do we get this explosion of these big normative paradigms? Um, Okay, so you, you know, they, these, they're very, these are very philosophical, uh, the, this cartoon strip, the uh, uh, Calvin and Hobbes. Let's say life is a square of the sidewalk. We're born at this crack and we die at that crack. Now we find ourselves somewhere inside the square and in the process of walking out of it. 
suddenly we realize our time here is fleeting. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Is our quick experience here pointless? Does anything we say or do in here really matter? Have we done anything important? Have we been happy? Have we made the most of these precious few footsteps? This is the kind of question, right? Uh, still very resonant with all of us here today. And this is what I mean by endorsing Bernard Williams' claim that uh, uh, these normative questions are first personal. This is what we're really worrying about here, ourselves, our very brief time here. Um, are we living lives that are worth living? Uh, this is the kind of question uh, that suddenly emerged in this period um, is in the forefront of some people's consciousness, enough so that there were these thinkers who forged these normative paradigms that still resonate uh, with us uh, today. Why, at this particular period of time, I've got very, it's a very long story, uh, I can't go into it very much, but one of the things that has been proposed, what was the big change that came about, is that the people were well-fed. If we look at all of the areas, and this was some work that was done by two uh, French uh, psychologists, uh, Nicolas Barnard and Pascal Boyer, um, looking at what was special about these areas that participated in the normative explosion. Uh, people were well fed, right? They had the highest caloric intake of any place else uh, on the globe at that time which um, is a way of endorsing uh, something that uh, Bertolt Brecht had said, uh, which is grub first, then ethics, right? I mean, when you are struggling, you know, 24-7 uh, uh, to just make sure that you get enough to eat to survive to see another day, and that your children and your kin survive to see another day, uh, you don't worry about does it all matter, you know, what's my brief time on this sidewalk all about. Uh, but, but, but when you, you are, survival is more or less stable, then you can begin to pose this question of what am I surviving for? What does it all mean? Do I really matter, right? Um, and you know, it, it doesn't take so much thought to think, look, so many have come before me and they, th their lives matter to them just as much as my life matters to me. And they struggle and they fought and they, and they loved and they lost and they won and, uh, and they're all gone. And there's not a trace of them left behind, right? There's nothing to show that they had existed at all. Why do we even to sh bother to show up for our existence in the first place as if we had a, as if we had a choice in the matter? Uh, but th this is the kind of question that can be posed once you're 
well-fed. There were other societal changes that were taking place in this area, in the, the various areas in Greece, in China, in India, um, Jayan Hills, they all, it's a longer story than they're having, uh, um, being well-fed. But in any case, uh, the kind of things that, that were going on that allowed this sort of question uh, to be posed and these various answers, the Abrahamic answer, the Hindu answer, the Buddhist answer, um, and the Greek answer, philosophy. Philosophy arises in that context in trying to address this basic existential question that is, of course, still with us today. The Greeks propose, or at least philosophy propose, putting reason to work in trying to answer this question. And that's really interesting because, as I said, the Greeks had a well-developed, fantastic religion, one that really engages the imagination. And their society was saturated with religious rituals. There were rituals and rites for everything. So why didn't they put their religion to work? in order to answer the great existential question. Why did philosophy arise there? Why did they turn to reason in order to do it? And my short answer is, and again, it's a long, complicated uh, topic. My short answer is, um, well, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll demonstrate it. If, if you go to any great uh, museum on the world and you look at the art that has been um, inspired by the stories of Greek uh, religion, um, you get a clue as to why they may not have turned to their religion in order to answer this question. Why the discipline of philosophy instead arose to try to grapple with this question of ultimately, do we matter? What can we do in order to make ourselves matter? And so um, it's not surprising that in trying to answer this question of how do we make ourselves matter in this world? What can we do in order to uh, achieve a life worth living? Um, are we born into mattering? Is there something we have to do or be in order to achieve mattering? Uh, the Greeks didn't turn to their religion. Those gods never made one feel particularly as if one mattered. You didn't want to attract the attention of the gods. Nothing good ever happened uh, if you attract the attention of the gods. If, in fact, the way that we are made to feel as if we matter has a lot to do with uh, attracting attention, being feeling worthy um, of attention, which I do believe it does have to do with, um, uh, then the, it's not a surprise that the Greeks turn to the attention of one another uh, in order to achieve their sense of mattering and not to their gods, um, quite unlike, of course, the Abrahamic view in which, yes, it is because we are uh, made in the image of God and, and we are, God pays attention to us and we matter to God. Uh, that's how uh, the Abrahamic religions try to uh, established that we matter uh, in the universe. So instead, uh, what the Greeks, oh, that's a terrible slide, but that's kleos. Uh, this is a very, very important concept in ancient uh, Greece. Uh, kleos is, is renown, it's fame, it's glory. Um, and the, basically, the, the way that the Greeks tried to achieve their sense of mattering uh, in general was to, uh, to do something big and extraordinary, to be impressive, uh, to impress your fellow citizens, um, 
and particularly to impress the poets, right, who were the social media people of their day, right? It was kind of the Twitter uh, or Facebook or whatever, Instagram maybe. Um, and uh, you, your story would be sung, you would be told about. Uh, your name would live on. In fact, the word Cleos comes from uh, the ancient Homeric term, uh, having auditory renown. And, um, and in this way, it would your 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 existence would not be for naught, uh, and so the Greeks did. They had what I call an ethos of the extraordinary. Uh, this was their way of trying to go about. Uh, it was a very secular way, a way a, a human way, not a uh, not a, a mortal way, not an immortal way of trying to achieve their mattering, um, and it was uh, to to do something big, to achieve something big, uh, and and be extraordinary in some way. And this. It's not philosophy yet, but I would say that it's, it was it created the preconditions for philosophy. It was a way of trying to think it out in very, very human terms, uh, this great moral quandary that was roiling up beneath uh, the normative explosion. Uh, how do we achieve a life that matters? Here's, just to give you uh, an idea, this is from Tindor's uh, um, uh, odes, they were written for winners of Olympic um, games. And two things only, 10 life's sweetest moment, when in the flower of wealth, a man enjoys both triumph and good fame. Uh, fame is kleos, this term that I was just talking about. Seek not to become Zeus, all is yours if the allotment of these two gifts has fallen to you. Mortal thoughts befit a mortal man. Uh, so this is this sort of encapsulates, expresses very well this idea of the ethos of the extraordinary. Uh, you triumph and good fame. It's not enough to do something big. People have to know about it, and then you'll feel as, as if you as if you matter. This was a sort of general ethos um, in ancient Greece. The philosophers. Uh, agreed with this, with this approach. They felt that you had to do something extraordinary, but not any kind of extraordinary would do. It wasn't enough to be, uh, you know, very beautiful or a great warrior or um, that in order to, uh, the, the answer that they proposed is that in order to achieve a life that's worth living, that matters, um, we have to think about what matters, where we have to think about, and they argued very strongly, Plato, uh, truth matters, right? And we, you know, truth matters very much that we act on the basis of our beliefs. Uh, and in order for our actions to be justified, our beliefs have to be true. It's very, very important. So we really ought to think about uh, truth, justice matters, virtue matters, wisdom matters. These are the sort of things that they claimed mattered. Um, and of course, the probably the most um, famous soundbite in the history of Western philosophy was what Plato uh, reports Socrates to have said uh, during his um, his defense of himself because he was on trial for his life. I uh, lost that, um, was put to death. Um, and just in case you think that Athens was a uh, society composed of, uh, of philosophers. It certainly was not. Uh, put, put a philosopher to death. Um, that uh, uh, Socrates had supposedly said the unexamined life is not worth living. This was, you know, his proposed answer to the great question uh, that was roiling beneath 
the uh, normative explosion of the axial age, um, and is the great question that uh, we all consider uh, as long as our bellies are fed, uh, even today, which is why philosophy is not going to go away. Because this question of what we can do uh, in order to achieve a life of maximum mattering um, is always going to be is going to be with us. And philosophy is a way, a non-religious, uh, secular way of trying to approach this question, which I would argue if I had two hours more, has indeed made a great deal of progress. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers.